As we've noted previously and truly, what a tremendous opportunity it is that we have today. This particular third Sunday in October, as the shades of God's creation so wondrously and colorfully change about us, to appreciate that God doeth all things well, and that He also encourages us so wonderfully by virtue of His Word. I would like to express again in a public way thanks for, uh, to Brother Gary for filling in last Lord's Day morning. Uh, Gary, I've known him for many, many years. He does such a great job proclaiming the truth. We did miss being here, but I know that you heard a tremendous lesson, a powerful, straightforward, and pa scripture-packed one as well. And certainly appreciation to Gary for, for uh, sharing the lesson last Lord's Day. The curse of relativism. As you might have noted in the bulletin as well as the wall to my left, that's the title that I've given for the lesson this morning. A title that I trust will challenge us to think somewhat interestingly and also somewhat amazingly, not only matters that relate to the church as a whole, but to you and me individually. Issues that we need to be very, very aware of. To perhaps introduce some of those thoughts, isn't it amazing that throughout the centuries, the church of our Lord has faced a number of difficulties, issues, troubles, and problems. Some of those problems and issues have been relatively minor in the sense that they didn't cause any great upheavals in the church as a whole. They were relatively short-lived. Those who, in fact, defended them when they passed away, that whole matter somewhat died rather quickly. On the other hand, there have been issues that once raised, their ugly head remained raised for a long, long time. In fact, it became a matter so great that it often led to splits and great divisiveness. It led to great troubles and problems, and it challenged the faith of many, many people throughout the eras. As you think about the nature of relativism, which will be the topic of the lesson this morning, it truly has been a matter which has been with the church, facing it, troubling it, problemming it for many, many years. In fact, identically since the very nature of the Lord's establishment of it. As we'll see this morning, we must never lose sight, though, of the importance of the problem and to arm ourselves to oppose it and to be ready at every stage and at every hand to hold up the banner of truth and to squarely defend it, to stand behind it, and to, in fact, not compromise it. With those thoughts, perhaps, as an introductory one, one might well ask, well, what does he mean by the word relativism? Is he talking about our first cousins and our second cousins and other family members, or is it something different than that? Well, it turns out it's something different than that. Let's define it first. And upon that definition, then let's build an appreciation from the point of view of the Word of God to help us challenge and consider it rather directly. You see, relativism, even though it has been around a long time, it has been given a name somewhat in recent decades. As you can see, by definition, relativism is this. It is an outlook, a viewpoint, a philosophical standard, if you please, which basically says that all points of view are equally valid and, furthermore, that all truth is relative to the individual. Now let's unpack that and put that in some more common language for us. Basically, a person who adheres to relativism would in essence say, my viewpoint or my opinion would be just as valid on any matter, including religion, politics, or anything else, as anybody else's. And truth is based on nothing more than how the person sees it. 
do you notice in that 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 removes any concrete objective standard for truth? If truth is nothing more than what's in my head or what's in your mind, the way that you see it and what a point of view may bring and what it may present, then there is no objective truth. That kind of issue, of course, is so severe and so troubling because notice some of the comments that you probably have heard with respect to it. Have you ever had conversation with someone, perhaps in regard to some matters like politics again, or maybe in which things occur at work or in the office, that comments relative to the fact of relativism are no problem. But when it comes to matters of religion, how often have you and I perhaps heard, well, that's the way you see it. I'm just as good as you are, and I don't see it that way. Or perhaps others will say, well, God accepts everybody who is sincere and loving about it. You don't have to stick to the standards of it. You don't have to be too concerned with the details. You don't have to be too enamored with the ultimate specifics of it. After all, everything is relative. We're all going to the same place, aren't we? You've noticed how often that I've used the word relative so far, which is where, in fact, the name for this whole idea came from. As you think, though, about relativism in regard to religion, we each, being students of the Scriptures, know what a problem that becomes. Now, true enough, in politics, what you think is just as valid as mine, and perhaps in matters of other things as well. But when it comes to a thus saith the Lord, nobody's opinion matters, and that includes mine. All that matters is what is provided in the Holy Word of God, and that cannot be compromised if we're to be pleasing unto God. That cannot, in fact, be scraped or at least dusted under a rug and given deference to what people think. And so it is with matters like that. Notice how it has even begun to slip into the church. I say that with perhaps a bit of concern in my voice, as perhaps you have concern in your mind upon hearing it. Yes, indeed, across our land, there are those who have reached the point of view that they're getting tired of arguing in defense of God's truth. And so they're coming to the beep of the point of happy to say, well, that group doesn't believe that you have to be baptized to be saved. Well, are we really sure you do? In the interest of making peace, why don't we just open fellowship with them? Is it really that important? Or perhaps in terms of partaking of the Lord's Supper. Suppose someone wanted to do that on a Saturday night. Well, is it really that big a deal? Does God really care when you take it as long as you take it? Perhaps on a personal note, as you think about speaking with someone directly, perhaps in the interest of an earnest desire for them to come to know the truth, and they seem to just pose one consideration after another, considerations that have no basis, no meat in their argument, and really are not even logical. It is easy after a while to get to the point of just saying, well, I'm getting tired of fighting this. I'll just accept you the way you are, you accept me the way I am, and we'll be all be happy. I've presented these arguments, and can we not all understand that after a while they can sound a bit appealing? After all, who wants to fight all the time? Who wants to be in a matter of defensiveness all the time? Would it not just be easier to forget the details, forget the specifics, open arms of fellowship, and just all wear nice smiles on our face? Well, therein lies the problem. 
God says, you can't do that and be pleasing to me. He said, I am a God of truth. I've presented the truth, and you must in love try to reach others. You will not reach them all, for they will have hearts that are unwilling to respond. They will, in fact, be, have hearts that sometimes are rather hardened and coarse, but you must at least love them and try. And in terms of the church, it must remain pure. As you think about matters that I have raised, let's somewhat look more carefully at some passages, though, that might give us some better thinking mechanisms with respect to relativism. What does this book say about it? I might submit to you that we could begin that discussion like this. Though it would be certainly a rather lengthy lesson for us to do so, and I'll not take that approach this morning, one could illustrate that relativism is really inconsistent. It is also self-defeating. That is, it'll defeat itself if you'll follow it logically to its end. But I would submit this morning we can take a different approach. As those who place our trust and our confidence in the all-inspired Word of God, if we can find passages where God has explicitly, though He may not have used the word relativism, if He explicitly condemns that by virtue of some presentation, we will have all we need to know in order to appreciate thoroughly, firmly, and resoundingly that we must oppose this and that our elders, as they lead us in opposing it, we should be dutiful followers of them and those who, in fact, lift up the hands of truth everywhere and anywhere that we have opportunity to do so. Those kinds of matters lead us to note at the bottom of that slide that all of human history can be divided so conveniently into those three portions and parts, eras, if you will, that we have noted on many occasions. There was that early stage in time, that patriarchal era, where God communicated to the heads of the families, the fathers, if you will, and they, in turn, shared that information with the family and encouraged them in the ways of right. Then there came that Mosaic era for the Hebrews, in which God gave them their laws written and expounded to them by Moses. And as those laws were presented, God expected and demanded that they keep them. And then there's that Christian era, the lovely, blessed era beneath which we live today. I might suggest that it would be somewhat fruitful, I think, for us to revisit episodes in all of those eras of time and ask, did God accept relativism in the patriarchal era? Was He open to it in the Mosaic age? And is He acceptable of it today? Without further ado, let's revisit the patriarchal era, pointing out at least an essence or two in which that matter was raised. Let's see how God dealt with it. Might we well begin in the Garden of Eden, in the very dawn of human history where we so well recollect that God gave to Adam and Eve some explicit commandments in which He, in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, simply said, "...of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat." But of the tree in the midst of the garden thou shalt not eat, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. That does seem as if it has great plainness within it, doesn't it? And in fact, it's more than an as if. It does have great plainness in it. They were granted by God the lovely liberty of partaking of every tree of the garden with the exception of one. They could eat of the tree of life, and yea, any other tree they wished, but... Of that tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of that they were not to partake. 
that again is so easy to appreciate. Yet, what is it that occurred in chapter 3? For there the subtle serpent appeared before Eve, and as the serpent presented to her the nature of gazing looks toward that tree, she came to appreciate through his leading notions that in fact it looked good for food. Furthermore, it was pleasant to the eye, and by also the notions he placed in her mind that she came to believe if partaking of it would make her as gods, as a god. Let's pause at this point before we finish the story. At this point, that's one tree out of who knows how many others in the garden. Does it really matter if I eat of that one, I can eat of all the others? Does that one make any difference? If Eve could talk to us personally today, what do you think she'd say? Was relativism okay for her? Of course it wasn't. We know how that story finished. We know, in fact, how the biblical record finishes it. We understand well that she did partake. She gave to her husband. He also partook, and God was true to his word. Notice he placed punishment upon each one of them. Furthermore, he cast them out of the Garden of Eden, and they were not allowed re-entrance there too. Furthermore, the sentence of physical death as a result thus came, Romans 5 verse 12. Eve would tell us directly, wouldn't she? Relativism is no good. God has submitted His truth. It's up to us to be dutiful, obedient servants to it. It's not our business to try to specify and think of alternatives. It has well been noted by some of the gospel preachers of the ancient era that you and I as Christians are not in the loophole business. God hasn't given any loopholes. The truth is set forth for us. Relativism is nonsense. If God had been interested in relativism, why did He give us the Bible? For after all, if what you think and what I think are both good enough to get us to heaven, why did we need this book? Isn't it interesting that just as surely as Adam and Eve's episode reminds us time and again of just how sorrowful and how dangerous relativism is. Consider with me also how we can consider the scene of Genesis 19. Not long back we studied a lesson in which we looked somewhat thoroughly at this matter. So rather than rehearsing all of it, can we not just consider how easy it may have seemed to Lot's wife? The angelic visitors had hastened Lot and his family's exit from Sodom. However, they were tarrying just a little bit longer than they should have, and so the angelic messengers again hurried them up, giving them only these commandments, Flee away and do not look back. Now that sounds so innocent, doesn't it? What harm could there be in looking back? After all, I've lived here for years. Could I not just gain one final look in terms of perhaps a desire again to know what took place there, to understand what kind of life I enjoyed there or had there? It is to be noted that when Lot's wife looked back, she became a pillar of salt. Genesis 19, verses 24 to 26. Again, how easy would it have been to simply reason what harm would it do to look back? Is that really so serious? Is that really going to damn my soul if I do that? What if she were able to speak to us today? What do you think she'd say? 
Would she uphold the hands of relativism or would she condemn it directly and absolutely and say, look at what happened to me? I submit to you the biblical record makes it plain. She would be the latter, wouldn't she? Patriarchal era thus, God was not interested in relativism. What about the Mosaic era? In the Ten Commandments, we will remember in Exodus 20, the straightforward matters related to various things that God placed upon the children of Israel. Of those, the fourth one read like this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He went on to specify two verses later, Six days thou shalt work and do all thy labor, but on the seventh day thou shalt not do any work. Not do any work. That again was that Saturday, as you and I would call it, the Sabbath. That seems again relatively straightforward. Now might we ask, did God mean that? Let us perhaps revisit Numbers 15. In verses 32 and to the end of the chapter, we have a somewhat interesting discussion about one episode in ancient Israel that is worthy of our attention. The children of Israel discovered a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Moses and Aaron put this man up into ward, into confinement, if you will, waiting to wonder what we should do with this man. Even they weren't sure at that point. Was this gathering of sticks on the Sabbath sufficiently severe that we ought to put this man to death? For that was the penalty that God specified relative to the violation of the Sabbath. Moses and Aaron apparently were not sure. They waited for God's answer. We find in that particular episode, God appeared to Moses and He said, Stone that man to death. Question for all of us. That man was in a position to where he might could say, I was just gathering sticks on the Sabbath. I still love God with all my heart. I still have a desire to earnestly and sincerely follow Him. What harm is it to devote 30 minutes to gathering sticks, if you will, on the Sabbath? God said, put that man to death. He broke my will. I said, not do any work on the Sabbath, and that's what I meant. Any relativism in that? Not in the slightest. God's Word was exactly what He intended it to convey, and He meant what He said, didn't He? Whatever that person would have thought, whatever reason, whatever excuse may have been in his mind, it didn't satisfy God. Might we notice then whether it be that episode, or whether perhaps it be the matter of Numbers, chapters 1 through 4, when on that occasion God gave commandment relative to the Ark of the Covenant, namely how it was to be moved and who was to move it. That again is relatively clear, isn't it? We understand how precious that piece of furniture was. It contained on the top of it that mercy seat, that particular place in which God met with the children of Israel, Exodus 25, beginning in verse 20. But now we notice that God had given statements about how it was to be transported and furthermore who was to do it. We thus notice when we reach that interesting scene of 1 Chronicles 13, something that is very intriguing indeed. Here was a group of people who were celebrating and rejoicing over the thought of bringing the Ark of the Covenant from its place where it was abiding then in Kerjath-Jearim to the city of Jerusalem. 
there to place it in the splendid place that they had made for it, to lift it up high as symbolic of the presence of God. It seems as though they had wonderful intentions, doesn't it? They were only trying to bring the ark to a central place so that everybody could have better access to at least its proximity. So they loaded it upon a cart, drawn by some oxen, and these two sons particularly walked along with it. As these sons of Abinadab proceeded to walk with it, one of them's name was Ahio and the other was Uzzah. And again, the story by now is rather familiar to us, isn't it? There came a time the oxen stumbled for fear perhaps that the ark would be damaged, for fear perhaps that the ark would in some way be greatly agitated. Uzzah simply put forth his hand to steady it. And now we might ask, what harm is there in that? Wasn't his intention good? Was it the thought of his heart directed toward the preservation of this precious article so that it could arrive safely at its destination? If there ever was a time that relativism might suffice, you might think that would have been it. However, what happened to Uzzah? A breach broke forth. God killed that man. Why? Why? Later, David knew why. And he said so in 1 Chronicles 15. He said, we have transgressed the commandment of God. In fact, he therein said, call the Levites and tell them to bring it. Uzzah should never have been the one involved in the conveyance of it. He had not been authorized by God to move it. And therefore, we notice in the violation, relativism was futile. And do we not see that his life was taken? God is serious, my friend, about the commandments He's given and relativism. We must never buy into it. In the patriarchal era, it was condemned. In the Mosaic era, it was condemned. I suppose we each might with interest wonder, what about the new era? When we read the writings of Peter and Paul, James and John, the other New Testament writers, what do they say about this? We perhaps could devote the remainder of this day till midnight and never touch even close to all the verses that speak to this matter. But let's choose only a couple of them and at least look in some detail at them. Mind I draw your attention with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. In this interesting passage, 1 Timothy 2, verse number 4, the inspired apostle in writing made this note as he was describing the characteristics of worship and proper service in the church to God, we read this statement, Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth? Now that word who refers to God. God would have all men to be saved. For after all, didn't Christ die for all men? 1 John 2 verse 2. And isn't it true that His death allowed the availability of salvation through grace to all? Titus 2.11. But, returning to that verse, who would have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth? I have used some information to help us consider some of the words that were used and employed in that passage. That word knowledge comes from the Greek word epignosis, E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S. It has a silent G in it. Epignosis. And that word, as you can see with me, means a precise and furthermore, a correct knowledge. 
In other words, it's not just a general, arbitrary kind of knowledge. It's specific, it's precise, and it's correct. Ponder that thought with me just a moment. Here is an inspired writer saying, God would have all men to be saved and to come unto a precise, careful, and correct knowledge. So that must mean there are kinds of knowledge that are not beneficial, knowledge that will lead one astray, knowledge that men may call valuable when in fact it's not correct or precise. Would not relativism perhaps fit into this? Especially when you look at the next set of words, and to come into a knowledge of the truth. There are many things man might come to know. One might know a great deal about biology, physics, mathematics, medicine, law, mechanics, anything else you'd like to add. It was the desire and will of God that men would come not to knowledge of that kind of thing. A person can go to heaven and never know a thing about physics. A person can go to heaven and never know a thing about mathematics. But friend, there is a kind of knowledge for which there is no substitute. And a lack of it, an ignorance of it, will damn one's soul. What is it, Paul? A knowledge of the truth. There is an objective actual, precise, correct, and real truth. Those of Paul's day, you see, needed to understand that point. And do not we need to understand it still today in light of such things like relativism? Wherein an individual would say, well, you think what you want to, I'll think what I want to, we'll both go to the same place. I don't think so. It is not haughty or high-minded or arrogant as long as we are aware of what the Scriptures teach and with a loving and kind disposition attempt to instruct them in matters of the truth, then that's what God expects and demands of us, isn't it? It's tragic when they will not believe. It's tragic when they neglect, when they ignore it or wish not to hear it. But nonetheless, that doesn't change the fact Paul said come to a knowledge of the truth. Just because some do, do choose not to believe it, that doesn't mean the truth doesn't exist. And that doesn't mean that truth's not powerful. And it doesn't mean that that truth is not the standard on that final day of judgment. Relativism, it seems, in this verse alone is rather strongly condemned, doesn't it? But however, look with me at the next passage. And this is the one that was read in our hearing earlier this morning. From the 32nd verse of John chapter 8, this falls from the lips of our Lord Himself. Jesus said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's a bit interesting to note that Jesus there said, Ye shall know. Ye shall know the truth. As I mentioned earlier, there are many things that a person could come to know which will not affect one's eternal salvation in the sense of being held accountable for not knowing it. But notice, he said, ye shall know the truth. As the Lord spoke those things on that day to that group of individuals gathered, remember, they were those of Jewish background and disposition, and their hearts, in many ways, were unreceptive and uninterested in the truth of Jesus. That's why in that same chapter, only eight verses earlier, he said, you shall die in your sins except you believe that I am He. 
trying to emphasize to them the overwhelming need to accept the truth. And so here he said, ye shall know the truth. When it comes to the truth proclaimed by God through his word, no substitute for it. And relativism is in fact a very, very dangerous thing. Because that leads me to elevate my thinking and my opinion to an equal footing with this. That has never been acceptable to God. Ask any number of the great characters throughout time, again, like Lot's wife. Ask Adam and Eve. Ask that man that gathered sticks in Numbers 15. Ask David and the others like Uzzah in 1 Chronicles 13. Is it ever a good thing to elevate human thinking to equality with God? Of course not. For His ways are far above our ways. His thoughts are far above our thoughts. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. And when it thus comes to relativism this morning, I've listed several other passages for you to consider near the bottom of that screen that all discuss the matter of truth. And that is really the basis, isn't it? If there is an objective truth, then there can't be this thing called relativism. But yet over and over again, the Scriptures state, such as in Psalm 119, verse 142, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. God's law is the truth. We just noted the statement by Jesus in John 8, 32, You shall know the truth, the truth will make you free. But what is that truth? John 17, verse 17 tells us, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Here is the truth. Thus, what I think or what someone else thinks, though they may be well-intentioned and though they may be honest and sincere about it, it could very well be greatly misguided. And if it is held up to the standard of the Word of God, then it certainly is, is improper and wrong, isn't it? Oh, how lovingly we can see that God requires us, love my Word, follow that which I've given you, obediently serve me, and I'll bless you with things hereafter that truly you're not able now to fully even fathom. This morning, I hope that as we've looked at these matters both individually and as a church, we are even more aware than ever of the need to understand how significant and how moving this kind of approach is because it's so easy. After all, there's no work involved in it except everybody, except everything, and there's no controversy. There's only, again, one problem. And like Paul said, we must be set for the defense of the gospel, Philippians 1, verse 17. Did it not say of him when he entered Thessalonica in Acts 17, verse 3, he opened and alleged with regard to the word of God. That means he defended and he set forth premises. You and I need to be ready. As described in 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify the Lord God and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that's within you with meekness and with fear. Thus, when we are armed with the understanding of how dangerous relativism is, perhaps we can be better charged and challenged to go forth into a world and to challenge others with the error of relativism and help them see. We understand many times the fight will be hard. Many times they will be objectionable and will not have a listening ear. Many times the heart will not be fertile. But perhaps God will bring hearts that are fertile to our way. 
so that when we share with them thoughts like these, they might openly receive it and be those to become children of the God of heaven. Perhaps in summary, we could thus notice that among the matters that perhaps is, some, is one of the most serious ones today would be this one. We at Pippin need to be on guard with respect to it. Other congregations as well, and not only that, but you and I individually. May we understand that be it the patriarchal era, be it the mosaic, be it today, God only respects His will. Human intuition, human feelings, human thinking, human approach are irrelevant because they are simply human. God demands His Word. The gospel plan of salvation sets forth that you and I, in order to become children of the Heavenly Father, we must do this. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess Jesus as the Son of God and be baptized. The gospel accounts of conversion in the book of Acts testify to the requirement of those things. If you have done that but need the prayers of brethren for strength, perhaps there's been sin in your life and you want them to know that you are making a change, we could pray with you and we'd be happy to do so today. If either of those things would be the need of your heart, don't rely on what you think. Don't leave here based upon, well, I feel that I'm all right. You need to know it by virtue of God's commandment. And only by the gospel plan of obedience that I just mentioned can you be sure of that. Tonight, or today, if you would respond, need to respond, don't delay, but would you not come even now while together we stand and while we sing.